Happened to Me, a rare disease and medical challenges podcast. The mission of our podcast is to support you, our listeners, and to create community as you confront the toughest challenges in life. All of us will experience health hardships. The real question is how we adapt. That's the focus of It Happened to Me, which wants to help you overcome limitations and live a full and satisfying life. Drawing on their own health challenges, co-hosts Kathy Gildenhorn and Beth Glassman interview guests who share stories and research to help you succeed in the face of difficult health obstacles. It happened to me, I'm not alone, and neither are you. The guest joining It Happened to Me today is Kira Deneen. Kira has her master's in genetics and is a licensed, certified prenatal genetic counselor. Kira is a multi-award winning podcaster involved with several shows and over a decade of experience. She's fueled by a passion for genetics and science communication. Her main show, DNA Today, explores the world of genetics in over 200 episodes. And her voice might sound familiar as she is also our producer. Kira, welcome to It Happened to Me. I'm a big fan of DNA today and have learned a lot about genetics. So let's start with the basics. When should a person or a couple consider genetic counseling? I think that's a great place to start, Beth. So people should consider genetic counseling when they are concerned about something in their family history that they want to explore either because they're planning a pregnancy or they're concerned about them developing a condition that someone in the family has. Um, also, if they have experienced health challenges in their life and it could be a genetic cause and they're seeking genetic testing. So, I mean, certainly a lot of different reasons to seek genetic counseling. Those are some that come to my mind um, when first asked. Yeah. So do you need a referral, Kira? That's a great question. So most of the time from my experience, like when patients see me, as Kathy mentioned in the beginning, I'm a prenatal genetic counselor. So I mostly meet with pregnant patients. So a patient can just call our office and say, can I schedule an appointment with your genetic counselor? So they don't need a referral for me. For other genetic counselors that work in different areas like neurogenetics, cardiogenetics, they might need a referral. So I think it's really case by case, but certainly a lot of genetic counselors don't require that. And there's this great resource called findageneticcounselor.com where you can actually type in your zip code and literally find a genetic counselor in your area. And so many of those don't require a referral. So in general, I would say no with like an asterisk with some exceptions there. And does insurance pay for this? Another complicated question. So oftentimes insurance will cover genetic counseling. There's two aspects of this. So there's actually covering the genetic counseling session. The billing code for that is 90604. So that's what I actually bill insurance companies. So that's, I put those numbers basically to the insurance company. That's what we're billing. Now, the other aspect of this is if you end up doing genetic testing, that's separate. So actually doing that genetic testing of processing your blood or saliva sample, that could be a, a different cost. But if you have a medical need and a reason you're doing the testing, I would certainly hope and expect insurance to cover it to a certain extent. Now, is genetic testing, as you were referring to, done before the visit? 
So sometimes that's the case. Sometimes someone's primary doctor um, or other healthcare provider might order genetic testing and then get results back and say, I don't know if I'm the best person to process this with you. So I recommend you meet with a genetic counselor, genetic professional, geneticist, so that you can have these explained to you by an expert in genetics. So sometimes that's the case. Patients are seeing me because they have genetic tests and if they don't fully understand, their doctor didn't feel comfortable exploring that with them. But most of the time when patients visit me, we're talking about, do you wanna do genetic testing? And in those cases, I'm able to talk about the test and educate patients on that to see, do they actually want to do this test? Do they fully understand what the test can tell us? And more importantly, what the test can't tell us. So I really like to be able to see it from start to finish because I think patients should have the option of learning about the test and saying, oh, I don't want that anymore. Like, that's not what I thought it was going to be. So that's really, you know, my preference. And I think a lot of genetic counselors preference. But if someone's already had testing, I certainly want to help them out and help them understand that. So Kira, the testing is not invasive. You're talking about either a blood test or a saliva test. Is that correct? Yes. In the vast majority of cases, when we're doing genetic testing, it's usually from a normal blood draw or you spit into a tube. So that's usually what we're doing. There are some genetic tests that let's say we take a biopsy and we t- do testing from that, but that's a little more in special cases. Usually if you're meeting with a genetic counselor and in kind of the scenarios we talked about, it's a blood or saliva sample. Yep. How many visits should patients be prepared to schedule? Certainly if you're going for first meeting with that genetic counselor, exploring testing options, that would be like the first, like the intake visit. Everybody has it set up different ways. So for my patients, If results all come back normal, I call them on the phone as soon as I have that, and then I won't meet with them again. Um, They'll certainly come to our practice so they can get ultrasounds for their pregnancy and and different visits there. But in terms of genetics, they'd be done. So kind of a one and done. If testing comes back high risk or that there's a high chance for a certain genetic condition, then I'm probably meeting with them multiple times. So I certainly want to meet with them to review those results in person. They might decide to do further testing, so there might be other appointments there. But spanning out from prenatal, because I think other areas might be more interest to your listeners. So if we are looking at the rare disease space, you know, the pediatric adult space, Um, you might be meeting with a genetic professional on a yearly basis. So certainly in the pediatric space, we have usually you're on that annual basis seeing if any testing has changed to do new testing because genetics moves very fast. So testing that we had a year ago is very different than testing we have today. It's also important that testing we might have done a year ago, we can look at the data that we got from that testing and say, well, we might be able to better understand this data now because our knowledge of genetics gets so much better over time. And a year is a long time. So sometimes in those visits, we can revisit the data and also see what's changed in the last year. Do you have any new symptoms? Has anything you know, changed in terms of you know, for children reaching certain milestones that maybe they didn't before? Being able to talk, being able to crawl, walk, being able to you know, feed themselves, hold up a spoon. So certainly there's different aspects there. For adult genetics, that might be something where you reach back out maybe on a yearly basis to see if genetic testing has changed, if there's anything to recommend. Same in the cancer space. And that might be more like calling in for a check-in. So it really, really depends on the specialty. 
Yeah. Well, back to the prenatal space. Do you ever suggest adoption as an option? And if you do, when would that be? There is this test called carrier screening that I offer all my patients, including those that are not yet pregnant, but are planning to become pregnant. With carrier screening, we are, as Beth was asking earlier, we are taking either a blood or saliva sample and we're looking at a long list of conditions to see if someone is what we call a carrier for that condition. What that means is that person is probably healthy. They probably have no symptoms of being a carrier for the condition. But if their partner or sperm or egg donor is also a carrier for the same condition and they're matching for that condition, there's a chance that their pregnancies, their babies could inherit that condition, even though the parents are healthy. So these are situations where if we identify that someone is a carrier of the same condition as their partner or donor, then we certainly want to have these conversations of if you naturally become pregnant, there's that one in four chance baby could inherit that condition. If you decide to do IVF, you could actually screen the embryos and say, well, let's choose an embryo that will not have this condition. So I view that as an option. Another option, you know, as Kathy brought up, is adoption. People may decide to not have a biological child and say, this is our opportunity that we want to explore adoption. So there's just so many different pathways of becoming a parent. And I think it's really important for people to understand that there are all these options. So I think that's one example of when it might be a good topic to bring up is if someone is a carrier of the same condition as their partner and they have that one in four chance of passing on, say, cystic fibrosis, sickle cell, then maybe they would start considering adoption if they haven't already. I wonder, Kira, if that's a devastating conversation to have, especially young people who have put off having children, they've gone to school, they are now working paying off school loans, and then decide to have a family and to hear that possibly they should not have children. Yeah, it certainly is a challenging conversation and one that people don't expect to be having. Uh No one expects that they're going to have an issue with passing along a condition, especially if them and their family members have been healthy. So in most cases, we don't see these conditions coming up in families. So it's certainly surprising news for people. Um, You know, in these situations, I think it has changed over the decades because we do have this technology of pre-implantation genetic testing or screening, so PGT or PGS. And that does give us an option if people want to have biological children and they want to pursue this, this IVF, that they can have a child that will not have this condition that's been identified. So... You know, certainly I like to present all the options and everything in these cases, and certainly adoption's one of them. And some people may have already been thinking about that. So it's really, I think, having people adjust how they were expecting to become parents. So certainly is not not an easy conversation, um, but I think one that there are options and sometimes insurance may cover part of that IVF process. 
Um, and I expect this to change over the next few years because this is going to come up more for people as more people do carrier screening, certainly prior to pregnancy when they're not even pregnant yet and they just want this information. In my job, I'm, I'm having a lot of challenging conversations with people and sometimes it's the hardest experience they've had so far in life of not expecting something different to come up and it's really taken them off guard. I think it's wonderful to know that there are options and they're with someone who is aware of those options and can provide that sort of comfort. So it's great that they're in your hands. Now, how do you help people who have genetic conditions? In cases where someone either may have a genetic condition and they haven't had testing yet or already have testing and know about that condition. In my role as a prenatal genetic counselor, if the pregnant person or their partner has a genetic condition, talking about, well, what is this condition and what is the chance to pass this along to a biological child? It's kind of like the prenatal area, but I think spanning out from that in terms of just genetic counseling in general, genetic counselors can really help people with genetic conditions in such a long list of ways. So I think one of which is just understanding the condition, potential treatment that might be helpful, identifying clinical trials that they might be eligible for, and helping them navigate enrolling in those trials and seeing if they're even eligible. Also helping identify other people in the family that should explore doing testing or other people to say, oh, your brother is planning on having children. Maybe that's something that we should you know, discuss in terms of if their child has a chance inheriting that. There's just so many different ways that genetic counselors can really help navigate is, is really a good word for genetic counselors for people that already have genetic conditions or that their child has a genetic condition. So parents, caregivers in this role, identifying other people that could be helpful for them, of looking at different patient advocacy groups and maybe connecting them with another person or family that has this disorder because there's only so much I can do in terms of educating them about a disorder. But if I can introduce them to someone that has that disorder or cares for someone with that disorder, that's going to give them a much better picture and certainly like day to day. So what have you learned from your interviews with patients who have these rare diseases? Yeah, I mean, I've learned so much. I've been hosting and producing DNA Today for over 10 years now. And I've just had such a wonderful experience of interviewing, I would probably say over 40 Asian advocates. And one thing that I've learned is just how important it is to connect with other people in your community. And whether that be people that have the same rare disease or a similar rare disease have gone through similar medical challenges, just that camaraderie and community is just, there's nothing like it. And just knowing that there's other people out there that you can relate to each other and that it certain stories resonate with you and can help you with, oh, we need a certain specialist. Do you know anyone? Oh yes, I know this doctor. I can get you in on the waiting list. And just so many different things there. And, and really just how much it can impact your life of having a genetic condition, but that impact can certainly, there are silver linings to it of just learning so much in personal development and making these connections that you never would have before. I think you guys are a great example of that, of you've been through a lot of hardships in your life, but you have this beautiful friendship out of this and you guys really support each other through this. So I think, you know, it's like I'm answering a question that you guys should be answering. <laughs> 
Well, it sounds like you do recommend joining rare disease advocacy groups. What other things do you recommend for people who find themselves in a situation they never anticipated of having a rare disease? What other counseling options are there for them? There's so many resources out there, especially in today's day and age with the internet and social media that you really can find these very niche groups. One general organization I always recommend is the National Organization for Rare Disorders. So rarediseases.org is where you can go. And it's really a hub for 7,000 rare diseases that we've identified so far. And you can find these people to connect with. And I really recommend that is, is your place to start. As we've talked about, genetic counselors can be really helpful in this process. Listening to podcasts like this can really help of just knowing that you're not alone. That's our tagline for this show. I mean, I think it's really great that we have resources like this available and, and knowing what's in your local area. So asking healthcare providers, like, is there any extra help for different things for different disabilities that may accompany certain rare disorder. Almost using you guys as an example, there there's certain things that you guys use in terms of like having drivers, right? So being able to bring you places. And so I'm sure if you connected with people in your area, you would be able to give them tips on like, oh, this is an organization I use, or this is a really great thing. Like think of one organization, birth to three is really great for children that may have developmental delay. So that's such a generic term of just not meeting milestones as quickly as other children might. And, and just just being able to figure out and navigate finding those resources and taking advantage of them. They're out there. It's really great to just start doing your research and connecting with people. Do you think therapy is an important part of this quotient? Yeah. Yeah. You mean like talk therapy and meeting with a therapist? I'm a little bit biased. My mother is a social worker, so she's a therapist. So I, I grew up being exposed to therapy and just how helpful it can be. I think when you have a rare disease or, or genetic condition, I personally don't have one, so I can only speak to it so much. There's so much that, you know, you're processing and just even as a human, there's so much that you process in life. I think it's really helpful to have a therapist or or a third party that you can go to to help you process this information and and learning skills. You know, there's something called dialectical behavior therapy, so DBT, that my mom specializes in. And learning these skills can be really helpful just in, in my own life of, you know, dealing with anxiety and different things. Like there's different skills that I use. Like when I'm anxious, I'm like, well, what am I anxious about? All right, I'm going to use the skill ride the wave. I'm just like, yep, I'm anxious and we're just going to go with it. I'm not going to fight the anxiety. I'm going to go with it. So I think there's just certain skills that just as a human is great to do. And then if you have, you know, other challenges in life, I think that that helps you even more. Kira, why study rare diseases? So I love this question because a lot of people think, oh, rare diseases, this is only going to help the people with that rare disease. No, stop thinking that way. When we study rare diseases, we're looking at such a unique way that probably genetics, most rare diseases are genetic. We can look at how a genetic change affects the body. I'll use an example. There is a genetic condition that leads to rapid aging. Kids that are 10 years old look much, much older than they are. It's a really devastating condition, progeria. We can study and we have studied people with progeria and these children and we're learning so much about human aging because 
aging is the number one cause of death, right? So when we look at aging, you're, you have an increased risk for cancer and heart disease, diabetes, all of these different conditions, right? So aging is usually a cause of death for people, especially now where we are with medicine. By looking at these rare diseases, we can say, well, let's, let's learn about this so that we can learn about this aspect of a human body. It not only really helps that specific rare disease and that specific community and those people affected by this disease, but it helps us just in terms of human health. So it really has a global impact. And I think that's, if people are not already invested in the rare disease community for a personal or medical reason, this is a reason you should be invested just because you're a human being and you will benefit from this, from the research we will get from this. I think that's something that people don't necessarily think of when they hear rare diseases. Absolutely. Well, turning now back to the genetic space, what is CRISPR and how could this help treat or even cure genetic conditions? CRISPR is probably the coolest technology that I've ever encountered. It has such a cool story. If anyone is is a book nerd like me, you should read The Code Breaker by Walter Isaacson. Um, <laughs> it's a thick book. It was <laughs> great. It is, oh my God, wasn't it just a fantastic book? Like Absolutely. I just nerded out. Like, you know, I get my highlighter out and my sticky notes. And CRISPR is this really, really cool, say technology because we've developed into a technology, but really... Decades ago, we discovered that bacteria, and stay with me for a moment here. So bacteria have this natural immune system where when they encounter this foreign DNA, so not their own DNA, because bacteria have DNA too, just like us, they basically chop up this DNA and then they keep some in their own genome, their own genetics. So that in the future, when they come across this again, they're like, wait a minute, this is familiar. I remember this. This is foreign. I'm going to attack this so that it doesn't, doesn't affect me. It's this natural immune system bacteria. And we're like, wait a minute. There were these scientists that said, well, what if we figure out how bacteria does this, chop up the DNA and, and put it in their own genome? Because this could be a way that we can edit our own genome by taking this concept and turning it into a technology. So that now we've developed this technology called CRISPR and we're able to, if you think about our genome and our genetics, like a really long ribbon, CRISPR is kind of like these scissors where we can just cut a piece of the ribbon, take that piece out, take a different color ribbon, take some tape and put it on there. So if you think of that like chopping out a gene, cutting out a gene that has a mutation, then we can put in a gene that doesn't have a mutation and you've essentially cured that condition, theoretically. We're able to edit genes. What's really cool about this is we've started clinical trials, which the book mentions, with sickle cell. So sickle cell is a condition I mentioned earlier that basically what happens in someone's body, I don't have sickle cell. So my red blood cells basically look like a donut. And because of that, they're able to easily flow through my blood vessels. And it, it gives oxygen throughout my body. Now, someone with sickle cell, their red blood cells are sickle-shaped. It's not like a donut. It's sickle-shaped, basically. And so it gets stuck in their blood vessels. And it makes it so that they have really painful episodes and, and other health complications. What this clinical trial has done is they can take bone marrow cells out from someone that has sickle cell, crisper them up, basically take the broken gene, replace it with the gene that's fixed or healthy gene, 
put those cells back into the person and then the person starts making healthy red blood cells and doesn't have the symptoms from sickle cell. This is still clinical trials. People are not having this, like you can't just walk into a doctor's office and have this treatment, but we're really well on our way. And it's very exciting time in genetics because if we can essentially cure sickle cell, why can't we cure a bunch of other genetic conditions? Well, how far away do you think we are from making this more widespread and mainstream for all types of genetic conditions? Starting with sickle cell, I'm hoping it's like in the years when it comes to other conditions, we have to see how we can administer this. So sickle cell is an interesting condition to start with because we can take people's bone marrow cells out, fix them and put them back in. Now, if we're looking at someone with say cystic fibrosis, where mostly their lungs are affected, it's more challenging to take someone's lungs out and CRISPR them, genetic edit and put them back in, right? That's a little more involved. So it's really gonna depend on the disorder and how we're able to administer this. Will we get to a point where someone can take a pill with CRISPR? or take some kind of injection. It's like, how are we gonna be able to give people CRISPR? It's certainly something that it's on the horizon. It's a very exciting time. Very exciting. If there's anything you guys wanna follow in genetics, CRISPR would be the one, in my opinion. Okay. So Kira, if you crisp up the gene as far as sickle cell, that could cure the sickle cell in that individual. Does that prevent that person from passing on the sickle cell gene? Great question, Beth. So there's the germline cells, so someone's eggs or sperm, and that we're not changing. So if this person has sickle cell and we're taking their bone marrow cells and, you know, I'm saying quote unquote fix it just to be, to make things clear and understandable, and then putting that back in the person, that's not going to change their eggs or sperm. For someone with sickle cell, and I've had patients that have sickle cell that are pregnant, we're looking to see, well, is their partner or the sperm donor, egg donor, are they a carrier of sickle cell? So this is something that both parents need to be a carrier in order to pass this on. It depends on the condition, but sickle cell is one that you have sickle cell and your partner or donor is not a carrier of it, then your children will not have sickle cell. So this is a recessive gene. Exactly. You got it. <laughs> yeah. Okay. So in other words, we could cure sickle cell, but not prevent you, but you would still pass it on. Right. There's basically two types of human cells, somatic cells, which is like your skin cells, your mouth, everything. Germline cells are just your eggs and sperm. Germline cells is what we're passing on. And they're not affected at all by the CRISPR. They're affected by whatever your constitution is. Whatever you're, yes. you're yeah. born with. Yes. Yep, exactly. There is this concept where we can, just like IVF, before we were talking about testing embryos, right? We may get to a point where we're editing embryos. So let's say that an embryo planted and develops into a pregnancy and a baby, a person, would have sickle cell. We could theoretically use CRISPR to edit that gene in the embryo prior to implanting that to become a pregnancy. This is something that was actually done not for sickle cell, but for another another condition. And this happened in China in AIDS. Uh, November of 2018. I think it was AIDS. So it was, it was basically they edited a gene that helps you be resistant to HIV. Yeah. So very close. And this was, I'm still floored this happened. I knew it was going to happen, but the fact that it happened, and this was, you know, four years ago now, it's something that has been done. It's something that we, th- you know, we, we can do 
And so the conversation becomes, should we do it? So this is really an ethical question. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Because we can do it. We have the technology. We have done it. That's a little scary, mostly in my mind, because if we're changing an embryo, all of the ancestors from that person will inherit this change. Mm -hmm. So if we mess up, we do something, that's now in the human population. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Whereas when we were talking about earlier of editing someone's bone marrow and putting that back into someone, when they pass away, that's not being passed on to their children, right? Because we're not changing their egg or sperm. Yeah. So that's where there's a big difference. When we're editing someone's somatic scales, their, their skin, their bone marrow, anything like that, that's not going to be passed along. Right. So that's the big difference between genetic editing of a person versus an embryo. Oh, wow. Final question, Kira. You produce a rare disease podcast that focuses on nano rare diseases. I got to ask, what is a nano rare disease? Great question, because I didn't know the answer to this until I started producing this podcast called the Patient Empowerment Program. And it's by N. Lorem. I learned that there's rare diseases which affect only so many people on the planet, right? Nano rare diseases are even more rare. These are conditions that could affect just one person on the planet or up to 29, so less than 30 people. A lot of rare diseases, they're rare, but we know of them. There's certainly a lot of different conditions, but there's a community there. There's a certain, like there's hundreds, thousands of people that have this condition. So when we're talking about nano rare diseases, we're talking about less than 30 people that have been identified with this condition. That's a really small population. <laughs> wow. Well, thank you, Kira. This information will certainly help our listeners begin to understand rare diseases in the world of genetics and genetic counseling. Well, thank you so much, Kathy and Beth, for having me on the show. It's really exciting to see that we've launched and we're building and growing this community. And I just want to thank you on behalf of the genetic counseling community that hearing directly from patient advocates is just so important. You guys bring so much to the field in terms of your own personal experiences and the listeners are just really benefiting from hearing your experiences and your perspectives. So thank you for putting the time into the show. Thank you for listening to this episode of It Happened to Me. We encourage you to learn more at ithappentomepod.com. That's ithappentomepod.com. Please use the contact forum on our website to submit your guest suggestions, comments, questions, ideas, and feedback for the show. You can also email us directly at ithappentomepod at gmail.com. We would really appreciate it if you can leave us a five-star rating and review on your podcast app, especially Spotify and Apple. This helps others in the rare disease and medical challenge community find us. It Happened to Me is created and co-hosted by Kathy Gildenhorn and Beth Glassman. Steve Holsenbach is our media engineer and co-producer. Ashlyn Anokian is our graphic designer. And I'm Kira Deneen from DNA Today. I'm the marketing lead and co-producer. And remember, it happened to me. I'm not alone and neither are you.